Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, if you would uh, take your outlines, and uh, as you do that, I'm sure you feel kind of a hard come down from all of that. Especially as you look at the outline and you say, do those guys know how to plan? I mean, we have this wonderful, incredible Christmas celebration, and then suddenly we take this hard turn into a very intense and deep social issue, and you think, man, is, did they know what they were doing here? And I want you to know we knew exactly what we were doing. And the very reason we did it just like this is because this is exactly what Christmas is all about. It's the glory of heaven and it's the struggle of earth come together at a moment in time. So this fits exactly with the season that we're in. You know, one of the most poignant moments of my life occurred not here in this building, but I'm gonna use this as if it were in this building. It was actually in the old sanctuary building about five years ago, almost to the day of this time of season. It was December of 1988, and on a very um, cold Thursday night, I sat about where Bill is sitting in the sanctuary by myself, except for my brother, Charles, who was sitting back about where John Ray White is. And we sat there alone in the darkness there together, And the fact that we were there in this sanctuary of the church meant that our relationship had taken a real turn for the better. We had not been on the best of terms for a number of years, part of which was because of distance and ideologies and things like that. And we had come in that distancing to believe certain things about ourselves, some of which may have been true, some of which was conjured up stereotypes. He had come to view me as a closed-minded, somewhat heartless, senseless fundamentalist. I had come to think of him in terms of being a laissez-faire libertarian, so to speak, who drank too much, who partied too much, and whose values were the direct opposite of my values. But here in 1988, at this time of the year, in this building, we sat together in this church Our journey began to get to that moment a year and a half before in 1987, shortly after my dad's death. It was at that time that my brother on an evening took me aside with a friend and told me that he had contracted AIDS. Perhaps I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was shocked. I mean, my brother did not have the characteristics that are generally associated with an open homosexual. Uh, He was a corporate lawyer for an oil company in Houston, Texas. He had served honorably for four years during the Vietnam War in the Navy. He had a lot of friends, and I'd known him as a brother, but I was really shocked. And in the moment of that incomprehensible statement that I have AIDS, I believe that in God's grace, God gave me some inspiration that forever changed our relationship. I got up off the couch and I walked over to my brother. I put my arms around him 
And I just hugged him. And I said something to Charles that I hadn't said in a long time. I said, I love you. I love you. And we sat there and held each other tightly. And this new relationship began between him and I. You know, it came about that a year and a half later, as he began to suffer from the AIDS virus, his body began to change, he began to lose weight, that we began to converse regularly. Sometimes it was awkward. There was a lot of anxiety sometimes in our communication. We were cautious. We both had all kinds of conflicting feelings to deal with. But, but because of that relationship in December of 88, I asked him to come and stay with us for Christmas, and he accepted he wanted to stay in a hotel, but I insisted he stay at our house. That week really forever changed our perspective of one another. It was a wonderful visit, and one of the scenes that I will vividly remember uh, with my brother, who was then pretty thin and frail, had to have moments where he just sat down and rested, was in the kitchen with my children. I was in the uh, family room, and he was in the kitchen, and they were drawing faces. My brother was a very talented artist. And uh, as they drew those faces and they were laughing and they were hugging on Uncle Charles, it was in that moment that he became my brother again. Just my brother. He was no longer a sexual preference. He was a human being. And shortly after that, I asked him if he'd like to see our church and he said yes. So we came over here. And there we sat, I hear him there, and it was quiet. And though I had had my moment of alteration, I think he had his moment of alteration here. He sat there, and I could feel all kinds of feelings going through him, even from a distance, of who I was, of what an evangelical church was, who God was, what all that meant for him. We left that night different. There were new attitudes. There was a new rapport. Uh, there was a new balance that emphasized where we could agree and a respect where we couldn't agree. I want you to know my opposition to his behavior had not changed, and his approval of that lifestyle didn't change either, but a lot did change. And it started with some open arms and a hug a few years before. I hope that story will kind of start us here this morning, and it, I think it illustrates the wide range of emotions and choices and difficulties associated really with one of the most important social issues of our day. And you're going to feel us on a roller coaster through this message because it is a message packed with emotion and choices, hard choices and decisions and places to stand and places to open your arms and hug. Over the years, I've interacted with all kinds of homosexuals and lesbians, people who've struggled with that lifestyle and that behavior. And many of those are in a group that I would put my brother in. I call it those who are committed to the lifestyle but coping with it. Committed to the homosexual behavior but coping with what such a commitment actually means. Where and when you can be open about it. When to hide without feeling guilty and dishonest how to handle all the conflicting feelings that go on within yourself. Eric Marcus, who is the former associate producer of Good Morning America, put it this way. He said, when I realized I was gay, I also realized I could choose to live in a closet, to pretend to be who I'm not, or I could be honest about who I am and live my life openly 
which for me was no easy thing to do. To live as a homosexual is no easy thing to do. And those that I call committed and coping spend most of their time wrestling with and exploring and trying to define in some way who they are in light of these feelings and pulls that are so powerful within them. What being a homosexual means, which can become an all-consuming task. My brother, for instance, as I learned through my mom in those years, had spent years in therapy with counselors, in support groups, going to a very liberal church seeking some kind of affirmation for who he was. And he, like a lot of his friends, spent a lot of time escaping into alcohol and even into alcoholism. My brother was not one for the radical side of homosexuality. He didn't march in gay parades. He wasn't necessarily for gay agendas politically or so forth. He was kind of too conservative for those things. And I'm not even sure on some of them he would have even agreed. He wasn't into that part. He was just into himself. That's where he was into. Struggling to cope like thousands of others who were in this group with a conclusion that he had come to about himself that he was homosexual. A definition that would define him and ultimately his destiny. My brother, like uh, Eric Marcus, the producer for Good Morning America, made homosexuality the paradigm for his life. And though he was committed, he had committed himself to it, he was never really fully able to come out of the closet, as homosexuals like to use that phrase. I discovered that when in the trips that I made to Houston over and over again to care for him and to care for uh, the situations that were going on around him and to interact with that whole community that was there in inner city Houston, I discovered that there were closets that weren't open for me after he died as I settled his estate in 1990. Fact is, actually, my brother had two closets, literally two closets. And when I went to clean out one, it was filled, as I remember, as a boy with his shirts and his suits and his shoes shined. He was very organized and orderly and everything was in its place. But then there was another closet. When I opened it, it was filled with evening gowns and slips and wigs and dresses, a girl's cheerleading uniform, and all kinds of photography showing his life within the gay community there in Houston. I saw a picture of playing poker with his friends in Aspen and everybody was dressed up like women. I saw some elegant social parties in the Houston social life with older men dressed in tuxedos and younger men dressed up as girls and even high school boys. I saw a lot of other things that I can't even mention, but it was the world that he had a hard time coping with. I say that because you have to cope with a lot as a homosexual. And for my brother, I think it was too much to reconcile, too much to work through. And I think the closets were a metaphor of his life. There was one closet where he declared himself gay, and he was open about that. But then there was this other closet about what gay means, and it was still closed, not only to me, but I think in, po in parts, even to himself. And that's the struggle of a large number of homosexual people. They're committed. They're a group, one group of several groups, but they're just coping, trying to make sense of it all. 
Now, I want to stop for a moment and I want to talk about another group within the homosexual community, the group that most of us talk about, are familiar with, and react to. And so I'm going to go to the far left for a moment, not the committed and coping here in the middle, but on the far left, those who I would call radical and open and pressing for acceptance, because I think they need a discussion as well. These are the ones who organize, and you see them on TV all the time. The Gay and Lesbian Coalition. These are the ones who are radical and hostile and angry, and you see that. Saw that just recently when one of the members of ACT UP or Queer Nation stood up and dressed down our president, Luke Sissyfag, and told him he wasn't doing enough about the AIDS situation. These are the ones who are agenda-driven. They seek a special class status that goes beyond basic civil rights, which gives them a legal identity and special rights that go far beyond what we think of as civil rights for race and gender. They want educational programs that affirm homosexuality as a valid lifestyle and homosexual behavior as a valid behavior at every levels of public education, starting in elementary schools on up. These are the ones who want the right to marry and to be defined as a legitimate family unit. They want adoption rights. They seek to intimidate and legally punish through all kinds of legal means any organization or person that refuses them entrance or in any way would refuse to endorse them as valid. You see that some with groups like the Boy Scouts. You saw that in the invasion of a Catholic church where they threw condoms at the congregation. You see that radical edge, and evangelicals are a part of what they see as hatred towards themselves. In short, they want full acceptance as an alternative lifestyle that they consider right. And they have a phrase for it. You hear it from time to time. We're here. We're queer. Get used to it. How do they plan to gain that acceptance? I want to give you four quick ways. First, through the use of myths, what I call myths. Probably the most powerful myth being propagated today is, I was born gay. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. But I want you to know on the start that there is no credible evidence for homosexuality being biologically predetermined. And yet I want you to know, because I've read for months and months on this issue, I've looked at every study that's been made available. And yet, and not a day goes by when I do not hear this myth being pressed on the American public as undeniable fact. It all kind of came to a point when I was flipping through the channels and I landed on C-SPAN just as a member of the um, uh, media, the, international, or the National Press Club was introducing the head of the Gay and Lesbian Task Force. And as this gentleman stood at the podium, his first statement to the National Press Club was, I was born gay, to which he received thunderous applause. And I thought how different that is for the press, who are the very group that we would depend on to ask the hard questions, even when they're not the politically correct questions. I was born gay. Our world today is so thoroughly politicized at every level that if I can borrow a phrase a very famous line from a recent movie, Jack Nicholson, in A Few Good Men, that our world can't handle the truth. We can't handle the truth anymore. Condoms are said to be safe when we know as a fact they're not. 
They fail. Abortion doesn't take a human life when every biological fact we have says it does. And now homosexuals are born gay when every credible study says you aren't. Remember the book Fahrenheit 451, maybe in high school or college? It's a book about an age in which uh, truth was suppressed from the common man through the burning of books so they couldn't get their hands on the facts. Well, we don't live in a world called Fahrenheit 451. We live in a world called Fahrenheit 451, where the truth is suppressed with the constant spreading of myths without asking hard questions and getting credible evidence. Well, that's one myth. The second myth is that 10 to 13% of the American population is gay. And that figure was used for years and years by the gay radicals to press their own personal agendas. And I still hear that. I still hear that even in educational materials. But perhaps you saw the Time cover story of April this year that was entitled The Vanishing 10%, where they did a much more documented study than the flawed one by Kinsey, and it showed that those who had had a sexual encounter with another man in the past 10 years made up only 2.3% of the population. But further, those who had had only exclusively sex with other men in the last 10 years in other words, they didn't do it because they were in a prison or they didn't do it because they were bored or they didn't do it just because they were looking for another cheap thrill, that they were doing it just with other men. According to time, 1.1% of the population. Not 10, one. A third myth is that homosexuals can't change. In fact, I watched Good Morning America where a gay psychologist pointed out, in fact, that it was psychologically cruel to try to change the sexual orientation of a person who was born with that sexual preference. In fact, he went on and made a statement that I think will one day be on the future agenda. He said, anyone who tries to change a homosexual should be punished by law for that cruel behavior. The truth is a homosexual can change. I'm going to tell you straight up, I have seen homosexuals change. I've been with guys in churches who have gone from one orientation to another, and they've done it successfully. Do they still struggle at times? Sure. We all struggle. We're fallen creatures. But have they made the switch? Absolutely. The American Psychiatric Association has documented such changes. They're on the books for anyone to look. In one study, Masters and Johnson's reported a 71.6 recovery rate when the right ingredients were present. You know what two of the strongest ingredients were? Just simply a desire to change. And secondly, that there was a wide range of support from other people in their quest for change. But the radical homosexual continues to propagate the myth that you cannot change what you were born with and by that elicit at all levels of society sympathy and acceptance and approval. But most importantly, they elicit passivity. Number two on your outline is that the radicals press for acceptance with the assistance of a pro-gay media. I've mentioned that already, but really the media assist the radical homosexual, and they're just a group within the homosexual community, by focusing on abstract gay rights and shielding us from specific gay behavior. 
The same way that in the abortion debate, the focus is always on women's rights, never on the fact of what it looks like to abort a human being. We're shielded from that kind of graphicness. You know, most of you have never seen a gay pride parade. Now you say, well, I have too. I've seen it on television. I've seen them when they protest. They just had that recent march of 300,000 in Washington, but you really didn't see it. What you saw was a sanitized sliver. That's what you saw. That makes that march look much like a civil rights protest of the 60s. But there were a lot of people who saw it differently who were actually there. It's on film. We have that film if you'd like to watch it of what it actually looks like. But what you saw on television was edited. It was mainstreamed. No one showed you the hundreds of lesbians marching topless down Pennsylvania Avenue. The men engaged in simulated sex acts. The crowd shouting, 10% is not enough. Recruit, recruit, recruit. The leathers, the guys in drag, the transvestites, the lesbians outside the White House shouting, Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea. You didn't see that. But you're not going to see a lot of things in this whole debate through the media because the media has their own agenda and that agenda is being pressed on our public in a single aim to grant them a legitimate status in their behavior. Radical gays also press for acceptance by the reinterpretation of Scripture, and it really comforts a lot who are struggling in that committed and coping group. In fact, it causes some in that committed and coping group to have reasons to move up even to the radical agenda. Jonathan David's friendship is said to be one of the purest homosexual relationships ever presented. The sin of Sodom is not sodomy, but the citizens there sin because they fail to show hospitality to the angelic visitors. That's gay theology. Direct statements condemning homosexuality in Scripture is reinvented by gay theologians as being homosexual acts committed by heterosexuals against their nature, according to Romans 1. Paul never condemns homosexual persons whose sexual identity is homosexual and who are engaged in those acts in accordance with their nature. Paul, they say, never speaks against love between two committed homosexuals, only against promiscuity of people of all sexual preferences. It's gay theology. And if you belong to one of those churches of the evolving Bible, if you belong to a church called Proof Text Bible Church, it makes real good sense. But if you ever read the Bible or know the Bible, you know all that is absolute nonsense. Finally, radical gays press for acceptance via education and legislation. And for some of us, that's where it really gets scary, when it becomes the law. I mean, tolerance for a homosexual person is one thing. Laws and educational curriculum promoting homosexuality as a valid lifestyle is quite another. And yet more and more we're feeling the press of that. Imagine how you would feel if you were a parent in the New York City school district and your child comes home with a book from the new rainbow curriculum with titles like Heather has two mommies, daddy's roommate, Gloria goes to gay pride. And that's what, that is exactly what first, second, and third graders were bringing home to their parents in the boroughs of New York. Parents in New York City have not, have, have faced that and have reacted against it. But that has not stopped the radical agenda. 
especially in sex education classes where so often, under the guise of sex education, homosexuality is clearly promoted as a legitimate alternative lifestyle, even here, even here. Militant radical homosexuals are not just open about their sexuality. They are pressing, they are demanding that society embrace them fully and completely. There's a third group, though, and this group catches us by surprise because here's the radicals, here's those who are committed in coping, but at the far side of the radicals is another group, perhaps even the largest group. And those are the ones that I call the hidden and the hurting. They don't like feeling gay. If they could, they would get out. They're not committed to it at all. They have the quandary that those feelings have put them in, this double jeopardy that they feel of dishonesty all the time in their life. Some have been periodically involved in some homosexual behavior. Others have never, ever committed a homosexual act, but the feelings are there. Those in this group, and there are many, feel intensely lonely. On occasions, I've had the opportunity to interview them and ask them questions and, and uh, ask them what it feels like to be in that particular place under those particular conditions. And let me just read some of the quotes they've given me. One said this to me, said, Robert, whatever disgust you feel for me cannot even begin to compare with the disgust that I feel for myself. Another said, I hate dishonesty, but I always feel I'm living a lie. I am, and then again, I am not. Another said, I live in constant fear of exposure and a constant state of loneliness. Another said, the energy it takes to maintain my double life leaves me exhausted and wanting some way, any way out of it. And then one said, and this is probably the most powerful of the quotes, he said, the most wretched thing about this condition is that when you look ahead, the same impossible road seems to continue indefinitely. You're driven to rebellion when you think of there being no point in all this. And you're driven to despair when you think of there being no limit to what this behavior might mean. That's the hidden. Those are the hurting. And I personally believe the church, the evangelical church being part of that, has abandoned this group of people, these strugglers. The church has provided no place for them to struggle, to admit who they are, to disclose who they are, to be real with assurance of love and acceptance. The church, the evangelical church, perhaps have provided no real safe places for this group of homosexuals. The hidden homosexual sits and listens to the conversation and oftentimes what will come up in those discussions is a caustic remark about gay radicals that is not put in that kind of terms. It's just that all gays are like that. They're all pedophiles. They're all child molesters. And in the midst of that kind of derogatory statements, it causes them who are already overly sensitive to rejection to shrink back and they say, there's no room in this end for me here. Not here. In the midst of those kinds of exaggerations, there's no place for confession to be healed because confession would only stigmatize me for a lifetime with the people that I desperately need to love me. I think today's struggling homosexual, this, this last group, 
would be the counterpart in the first century of those that we call lepers. Remember the lepers? They were asked in the first century to live outside the city. They couldn't even come into the city. And wherever they went, they had to shout as they went, Leper! Unclean! Unclean! In many ways, that's how the hidden homosexual feels. Feels outside the church, even when he's in it. And deathly afraid to announce his struggle. Because if he did, it was too dangerous. He's too dangerous to be wanted. And he's too unclean to be embraced by these righteous people. I think John Drakeford in his book Forbidden Love says it best. He says, a man stands up in the church and tells of his story of his early drinking escapades, his slide into alcoholism. Another admits having been on drugs and tells of his struggle with addiction across the years. In both cases, the man declares... He is through with it all, and he's immediately hailed as a trophy of grace. But let a man stand in the church and tell of his struggle with homosexuality. A strange hush will descend. And the reality is the people will not want him to go on. In fact, they will not want him to be even a part of their community. Draw on these three distinctions because in becoming a part of the bold new world, we cannot speak in stereotypes or generalities. We have to speak to specific targets and say what we mean and mean what we say. I've given you a little outline or a little diagram of these three groups to help sum up what I have just said. The radical, the committed, the hidden. The radical I would define as agenda-driven. The committed as comfort-driven. The hidden as anonymity-driven. The need of the radical is love and acceptance, but the acceptance he seeks is not just personal, it's philosophical. As William Raspberry, the, column, the columnist, said, he said that the radical homosexual demands that we acknowledge his sexual choices and my sexual choices as perfectly equivalent. So he wants the acceptance of his personhood, but also of his behavior and even a philosophy of life. The committed, what do they need? They need love and acceptance. Just love me. Just accept me and help me. The state of mind of the radical is that he is working for change. He's rarely open to change. The state of mind of the committed is he's seeking to cope, and it's right at that point where there is an opening for real change. The hidden and hurting is willing to change, but he needs a valid reason and help to change. Now, when it says the percent of the whole, I looked and I cannot break these groups down, but this is just what I suspect because this is almost true in any groupings of people. The radicals are small. They only make up a small part of the homosexual movement, but they're loud. The committed make up the second largest group and they're moderates. The hidden is probably the largest group and they're quiet. The portion of the homosexuals that the church seems consumed with, you can put a big X by the radicals. That's where we're consumed. They scare us. We recoil against them. They make us angry, and they're angry at us. We're consumed with them. But with the committed, we often struggle with them because they're our sons and our daughters. They're our friends and our coworkers, and they put us into a real ambivalent kind of feeling. But concerning the hidden ones, you can just put the word ignore. Just don't know. 
There's no real place for them, and we've offered no real opportunity for them. Now, I want you to know that the central question in all of this debate is what causes homosexuality? I want to come back to that for a moment. Is it biologically determined before birth, or is it the result of some environmental conditioning? You know, there are two recent studies that have come out, one by Simon LeVay, the uh, neurobiologist, who saw that there was a difference in the hypothalamus of the brain of homosexuals and heterosexuals. And then you had a second study by Dr. Michael Bailey and Richard Dillard, who saw some genetic differences between homosexual and heterosexual. And both of these studies, if you read a lot, you know received wide coverage and uh, with the press and for many people finally, quote, proved that homosexuality is predetermined biologically and gave many gay people uh, the right to say, see, I was born that way, it's who I am, and how could you deny me who I am? I think it's important that you know, if you will do your own research, that few have noted the severe limitations of both those studies, only two, at least at present. Or what is most important, that these studies, neither of which have been accepted by the academic community as valid. There's all kinds of problems with those studies. And so as far as the research is concerned, these studies raise a lot of questions and interest, but they don't prove anything. I've given you a quote by William Byrne and Bruce Parsons from the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and they say, recent studies postulate biologic factors as the primary basis for sexual orientation. However, there is no evidence at present to substantiate a biologic theory Critical reviews show the evidence favoring a biologic theory to be lacking. Now that's once you get into the academic community. The truth is, credible scientific research now, as well as in years past, continue to go back again and again to the same place as far as saying this is what causes this predicament within persons and this pull and these intense feelings. And it is that they have been born out of a hurtful environment early in childhood, not out of a gene or a brain abnormality. I've given you some quotes in that regard over the years. Uh, Masters and Johnsons, when dealing with the problems of sexual preference, it's vital that all healthcare professionals bear in mind that the homosexual man or woman is basically a man and a woman by genetic determination and is homosexually oriented by learned preference. Charles Sakharad says, homosexuality is not innate. There is no connection between sexual instinct and the choice of sexual object. Such object choice is learned. It's acquired behavior. And then, most importantly, is the study done by Elizabeth Moberly at Oxford University. She says, a homosexual orientation does not depend on a genetic predisposition or hormonal imbalance or abnormal learning processes, but on difficulties in the parent-child relationship, especially in the earlier years of life. The underlying principle is that the homosexual has suffered from some deficit in the relationship with the parent of the same sex. Now, there will be some exceptions to that. Most likely, you'll hear. But studies indicate that 80 to 90% of gay men have suffered some severe deficits in their relationship with their father emotionally. They felt alienated and cut off. And in trying to deal with that, it created a real psychic wound within them. Some say as much as 75% of lesbians 
are incest victims. And the other 25% have been treated so rotten by men that they've recoiled in that, away from having to do anything with men. That's why Bieber, a number of years ago, came to this conclusion that a constructive, supportive, and warmly related father precludes, he says, the possibility of a homosexual son. Now that's what the evidence says from science. From Scripture, we might ask, does the Scripture teach that one can be born a homosexual? And the answer is no. What the Scripture teaches <laughs> is that we are born sinners. That's what the Scriptures teach, which means we are born separated from the life of God. And according to Genesis, as you read it there and dissect it, we are born with an innate natural propensity for two things, self-protection and self-promotion. That's how we're born into this world. Wanting to protect ourselves and wanting to promote ourselves at all cost in any way regardless of morality. And as sinners entering this kind of world with all these choices, we become vulnerable to any and all behaviors that might promote us or protect us. But we are not predetermined to any one particular behavior. What we are exposed to and how we choose determines all of that. After birth. We are born sinners, not homosexuals. And that makes us, and I love the words of Dr. Merrill Vinson, who is in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He says, we're all born sinners, which means, he says, I'm quoting him, that we're all sexual deviants of one sort or another. Isn't that true? Would you raise your hand if you're a sexual deviant? I would. I am. I have all kinds of immoral pulls on my life every day because I was born alienated from God and I'm still working through that even though I'm now connected with God. So let me offer the following summary. Anytime someone says, I was born a homosexual or homosexuals are born that way, and you're going to hear a lot of that, you need to have the confidence as a student in the classroom, as a person in the workplace, as an activist in society, you need to say, that is not true. It's not true. No matter who says it, no matter what their credentials, there's so much rhetoric, politicized rhetoric, it's not true. There is no solid evidence, medical or scientific, for the support of that. None. There's some studies that have questions and will continue to do that. But if they insist that it's true, then you tell them, prove it. Prove it. Tell your teacher, prove it. And then let's get down to the real debate, which is not rhetoric, but factual. The truth is, the best bet on homosexuality is summed up, I think, with Elizabeth Moberly's research. That is, that the man or woman who, who is a homosexual now has probably suffered from some emotional break or deficit in the relationship with a parent of the same sex early in childhood. I know that's true with my brother. And I know that's true with every struggling gay man I have ever met. There may be some exceptions. I'm just telling you from my experience. They suffered some kind of psychic break with the parent of the same sex and that tells me, do you hear what that's saying? It says how important the home is. 
and how important a constructive, supportive, warm, involved relationship of fathers to sons and mothers to daughters is. That's why Malachi said, unless the hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the children to the fathers, I'll smite this land with a curse. That's why in every society, once it moves from agrarian to more urban and prosperous, and the home breaks down from being domestic to that atomistic that we talked about in the last message, and everybody's on their own wavelength and their own rights, and they depart leaving children alone. It's at that point in the nation's history or the empire's history that suddenly homosexuality, like a plague, breaks forth. Why? Because fathers aren't with sons. Mothers aren't with daughters, I believe. And here's what takes place. You suffer that emotional break. And then, as this child moves into adulthood, these psychological deficits go underground and they become eroticized, bringing on a person who's now a teenager or he's in his late teens or 20s, these powerful feelings, sexual feelings now, towards a person of the same sex, which he didn't choose. He didn't choose those but they've been reinvented within him because of that psychic hurt and he feels this strong compulsion forward to someone of the same sex leading him to believe, I'm a homosexual and I've always been a homosexual. I was born that way. But the truth is, he wasn't born that way. He was wounded that way. And to now go on and choose homosexuality and homosexual behavior as a solution is, either, is, is going to even further hurt him and alienate him from the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's the truth. What does the Scripture have to say? I've listed on your outline just some general principles that I'd like to move through and fill in. Now I'm going to be, if you guys don't mind, since I've only chosen to do this once, I'm, I'm already can tell I'm going to be a little late. But... I'm going to appeal to you to give me that five or ten extra minutes. <laughs> Look at letter A. According to the scripture, homosexuality is a behavior. How do I know that? Well, look over at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. As Paul is talking to this Corinthian body about sin and about how to live righteously in the age in which they live, he comes to this place where he tells them not to defraud themselves, not to, not to go off on some tangent. And then he reminds them, starting in verse 9 of chapter 6, this. He says, Don't you Corinthians know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now when I read through that list, what jumps out at me is I see behaviors that no one wants to be labeled as an orientation biologically predetermined. The word effeminate there in verse 9 is the word soft, malakoi. It refers to the man who would take on the characteristics of a woman like transvestites do. By the way, since it is Christmas, you might want to know that Caesar Augustus, the Caesar who reigned in Jesus' birth, was a homosexual. And he played the soft role 
in homosexual encounters. According to the historian Suetonius, Augustus would sell himself to his lovers for 3,000 pieces of gold for a homosexual encounter. So he was a, an effeminate homosexual. And then there's the other that he mentions here, the homosexual who has sex with a man, chooses to have sex with a man. Now look at those labels, all those labels that are there, because they're pinned on people. But they're pinned on people because of their behaviors. Now why do I say their behaviors? Because as I looked at that list, I asked myself these questions. When does a thief cease to be a thief? When he stops stealing, right? Okay, when does a drunkard cease to be a drunk? When he stops drinking. When does a homosexual, according to the Scripture now, cease to be a homosexual? When he stops having immoral sexual behavior. That's when he ceases to be a homosexual. Now, will the thief at times feel the temptation to steal? Or the drunk who now is sober, the temptation to drink? Or the homosexual, a temptation for an encounter? Sure. But that doesn't make them that, apart from, according to the Scripture, the behavior. Letter B, homosexuality as a behavior is sinful. If you'll notice in verse 9, if you're still there in 1 Corinthians 6, he begins by saying, that this that he's about to list is unrighteous. It's sinful. But I also want to add, notice, that homosexuality is not placed above other sins in this list. <laughs> you see that? It's in the midst of this list. In fact, notice that the first sin, the first behavior is what we could call today in our world safe sex. That's the first one. And then you get to adultery even before you get to homosexuality. If you want to put them like a list of who's number one, I mean, homosexuality is down there number four. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be set up. But it doesn't stand out as we make it stand out in our ignorance and our fear sometimes as being the sin of sins, the ultimate sin, the ultimate curse. You're not going to find that in Scripture. It's not presented that way. And you say, oh, no, I've read Romans 1 and stuff. It's the bottom. No, it's not the bottom. There's a warning there that we'll get to in another principle. But it's a sin of sins of which we're all guilty. That's what the Scriptures teach. Then I want you to notice a corollary that I've put there under, number, under letter B. Homosexual behavior is sinful. Homosexual needs are not. Remember the need category on that chart I gave you? The desperate need of the homosexual is love and acceptance. A need he's trying to satisfy in a sinful way. But here's what I want you to know. He can stop that behavior. He can choose to stop that behavior, but that will not satisfy his desperate need of love and acceptance. Just stopping that is not going to be the ultimate cure. That's why a true healing of the homosexual will not occur with the cessation of his or her behavior. There must be something deeper, and that deeper must be experienced with an encounter with the living God, the loving, merciful, gracious God of heaven who's come to us, and an equally accepting, loving, and supporting Christian community of people who are not afraid of embracing that struggler. 
You see, they must have healthy spiritual relationships to meet those normal needs that they are trying to get satisfied in an abnormal, sinful way. And if they don't, they remain desperate and lonely even when they've ceased from the behavior. And that's not right. Letter B, homosexuals can change. I want you to stay in chapter 6. He's listed that list, which includes homosexuals. And he says, all these people who practice these things with no thought of God will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, he looks at the Corinthians themselves and he says, and such were some of you. The thing that made this a dynamic church is there were ex-gays in the Corinthian church, ex-transvestites in the Corinthian church, ex-alcoholics. They were all, all there, but they had had the liberating force of the power of God, and they had a spiritual community that struggled together in those sins to be redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who they were. They were washed they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That is such an encouraging statement. Probably one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture because according to the Scripture, a homosexual can change. Letter D, and here the warning comes, the cultural acceptance of homosexual behavior signals real danger. There are a lot of passages on homosexuality, but I want you to turn back to a small minor prophet, Hosea, if you can find it real quickly. And I want to read you a statement as Hosea lashes out at this wicked nation who is caught up in their prosperity and thinks that they got it all put together and they have all kinds of sins being unleashed and they think it's going to go on that way forever. And Hosea comes along to Israel and tells them, it's not going to go like this. Judgment is coming. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 7. And he makes these statements. And I want you to listen very closely. He says in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. You don't know it, but they've already come. The day of retribution has come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity. In other words, us talking like this makes no sense to you because you're so caught up in the rhetoric of your day. And so when the prophet comes, you think he's an idiot. He's a backward, senseless fundamentalist of a bygone era. He's demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because of your hostility. It's so great. You lash out at him. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of God. Now listen to verse 9. They have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. Now if you're a Bible scholar, that should turn all kinds of lights on. Because Gibeah and the event of Gibeah is in Judges 19 when a Levitical priest comes into Gibeah, the city of Gibeah, and he's got his concubine, this young lady with him, and they go to house themselves in Israel for protection. And when they get there, the men of Gibeah come out and bang on the doors and shout and kick in the roof and all that and demand that the priest come out so that they can have sexual intercourse with him. That story is found in Judges 19. That's, the, that's going deep in depravity. Where at this point, all you're thinking about is you. You're into you. Deep in your depravity. 
as in the days of Gibeah, and God says He will remember their iniquity and He will punish their sins. And any society who moves to a place where there is a licensing of that which is evil and calling it good and calling good evil, because now if you read Joe Sobrin not long ago, homophobia is the illness, homosexuality is normal. When we get to that, we are in dangerous days. But now let me counter that with a following principle in letter E. The church's acceptance of hurting homosexuals signals real maturity. Real maturity. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 14.15, we urge you, brethren, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men, always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. And it takes a mature church to do that in the lives of struggling, hurting homosexuals. Three quick action points for you today. First, in our world, I'd put the phrase tolerant and intolerant. That's our stance in the world today. Tolerant in that homosexuals of all kinds need to be treated, whether they're radicals or hidden, they need to be treated with dignity. They're not just homosexuals. They're human beings with feelings and needs and abilities. And they do not need to be denied their basic civil rights. They need to have them. That's tolerance. Intolerance in that we must stand up against any and all efforts at whatever level that seeks to sanction homosexuality as an approved alternative lifestyle. Whether it's you as a parent and what's going on in your school, whether it's in the legislature and what laws are being passed, whether it's through intimidation or the spread of myths. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to stand up unashamedly. You've got to stand up and say, that's not right. We need to get back to that simple statement. That behavior is wrong. And let me tell you, it's not going to be easy in the days ahead to walk that tightrope of tolerance and intolerance. Secondly, in the church, we need to be open and caring. Open meaning that we must not close ourselves off to the homosexual community out of fear or ignorance or the fact that we just want to protect ourselves. That's selfishness from the evil nature, our basic nature, when we go to self-protection and self-promotion. Remember? Open, an open church will recognize the desperate need of the homosexual, homosexual in his sexual brokenness, and he'll reach out. This morning, I want to mention to you a group that we are starting today. We've got some people who have in our body who've, who've uh, joined with us to do this, but we're opening up a group that's tied to a national organization called Homosexuals Anonymous. It's a first step in this regard. It is a support group that protects what the hidden and hurting need protecting, a certain level of anonymity. But at the same time, it allows them a safe place with a loving church to just simply recognize who they are and what they struggle with. If you're in that category or know somebody in that category, if you look at the bottom of your outline, it says HA and there's a phone number and you can call that phone number. You can have them call that phone number and leave their first name. And members of this support group will get back to them and tell them a place and time to meet to begin to help them rebuild what was broken. Then finally, some personal growth points. I'll miss, list only two. As a Christian here this morning, can I challenge you to watch your words. As the brother of a homosexual who has died of AIDS, I have winced a number of times in my new sensitivity 
to comments by members of the body about who homosexuals are. Stereotypical comments that go way beyond anything that's gracious. Things that withdraw us. Things that scare the hidden homosexual to run even further in the opposite direction of the grace of God. I'm not asking you to be politically correct. I'm asking you to obey Ephesians 4.29 when it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth except for that which gives edification and grace to those who hear. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be so articulate that a hidden person struggling with this issue in their life would hear us say, you know, we really love those people and we're against the radical militant wing of the homosexual. We know most of them aren't there and where these people are, we want to help. And there's words that are flowing out of us of grace and love and acceptance. That'd be wonderful. So watch your words and then invest in your children emotionally, men. Hug them, affirm them. Ladies, love them for who they are, not for what they're not. Because that more than anything else will safeguard their sexual identities. Well, it's a bold new world, but I want you to know I have a dream. And that dream is that one day, struggling homosexuals could sit where my brother sat, right out there. But not in the dark, not at night, and not alone. But that that struggling homosexual would feel the freedom to sit here in our midst and be awed by the love of God and would join with the rest of us sinners as he seeks to redeem his nature as we seek to redeem our nature together by the power of the living Christ who has come to man, Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this hour which does bring us so intimate with both the glory of the living Christ and the struggle of this planet, wrapped into one. And yet out of this can come unbelievable victory. I pray that you would help us as a church to help the weak, to encourage the faint-hearted, to be patient with all men. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here who struggle with this strong temptation that they might feel our concern and our love and our willingness to risk for their benefit. It's a bold new world. God help us to be a brave new church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.